Welcome to Jackson Connection. This is William Oliver Abram. You're listening to my dad, Papa. Welcome, everyone, to episode 103 of the Jackson Hole Connection. Brought to you by William Oliver Abrams, my four-year-old son, and the Jackson Hole Wine Club. Please visit thejacksonholeconnection.com slash TLS to learn more. Hello from Jackson Hole. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host and guide today. Each week I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their fascinating story about daily life. I feel we can all learn so much from each other and I intend to search out people and their stories which will teach us all a little about life outside of your everyday circle. Today's guest is my first return guest, Ed Brenniger. Ed and I visited 100 episodes ago, which was just about 23 months ago. Since that time, Ed has been traveling the United States promoting his book, Circle of Impact, Taking Personal Initiative to Ignite Change. Ed has also enjoyed the opportunity to travel and work with leaders from several different countries throughout the globe. And as Ed mentions, we are all in a place of transition in our lives at some point during our life. And for many, this can translate to multiple times of transition throughout our lives. Ed will share with us how he has been helping others define what leadership means to them as individuals and as leaders for their communities. Ed has embarked on some exciting work over the past 23 months and is preparing to release some valuable content, which may help us all define the leader within each of us, which is much needed in times during this COVID pandemic and when we come out of this pandemic. So please enjoy my time with Ed today. I know that he will have some valuable information for you. So enjoy, have fun. Thank you. Ed. This is a delight to have you back here at the Jackson Hole Connection for episode 103 and only 100 episodes apart from the last episode. You were episode number three. Thank you for joining me again. It's great to be here, Stefan. It took a long time for me to figure out something else to say. (laughs) But here I am, and I'm glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. And I've been able to call you a friend for a number of years now. And for you to say it took a while for you to think of something else, (laughs) it's hilarious. I think that's the funniest thing I've heard all day today. Thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Lots going on in the world. You and I had a, a fabulous meeting and dog walk the other day. Because somebody might not have heard episode number three, let's give a quick background as far as what is your connection to Jackson Hole and a quick, who is Ed Brenniger? Okay, I moved to Jackson Hole five years ago, a little over five years ago. I came here to kind of start over, and as it turned out, I have spent the majority of my time here um, developing a book called Circle of Impact, Taking Personal Initiative to Ignite Change. And I've produced the book, and it was published in September of 2018. And since then, I've spent a lot of time traveling the country and and now the world to promote the book and promote the ideas in the book. And and you've done quite a bit of work in Africa. You've made some great connections there. I've started uh, going to Af- Africa to do leadership training there in uh, Kenya, Uganda, and Benin, which is in West Africa. And now we are in 
a crazy time in our world. And your book is all about leadership and what people can do themselves to ignite change because they're in transition. Yeah, it's not just about leadership. It's also about transition. It's really about how, let's put it this way, it's how people who recognize that they are in transition can begin to live lives that make a difference that matters in their local community. Let's start off with defining what you see transition. What does transition mean or what should it, what can it mean to an individual? Okay. Uh, We're all very used to talking about change and it feels disruptive and um, chaotic and uncomfortable and it makes us feel insecure and it destroys confidence. Well, those are kind of random incidences that we go through in life. And I see transition as the collection of all those changes as a pattern, a pathway, uh, a sequence of changes that we're going through. And when we can see that transition, then we, when then we can begin to recognize that there's something significant going on in our lives, which may be really good or it may be something we should be concerned about. But then because when we can see the transition, then we can say, this is where it's taking me, and that's where I want to go. Or, I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere else. So I'm going to start a different path of transition. Okay. I think I've hit that moment a few times in my life. <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> right right this week. <laughs> yes. Yes. This uh, All the time. And raising two small children with my wife. I think we're in daily transition. <laughs> And, and when, you, when they get older and they're out of the house and you look back and you'll see all those meaningful moments of transition that you've had with your children and you'll look back and say, this has been really a significant part of my life and how great it has been. And then you're going to have that opportunity when they have their own children and you're going to watch them go through their, tr- their sets of transitions with their kids, but you're going to also go through it with your own grandkids. Mm-hmm. I, I look forward to having that time. For sure. Mm-hmm. So today we have some really important topics to discuss. And how does what you teach relate to what's happening currently right now with COVID-19 and some of the protests that are happening out there? Well, if you had read my book, and I would encourage people to write, read the book because I think it, it actually predicted what we're going through. In the book, I, I speak about a what I call two global forces, and one is the force, a global force of centralized uh, institutions of governance and finance. And those are the institutions that have been running the, uh, the, the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, pandemic process or response. And we, and we can look at them and say, so that's what uh, a global institution actually looks like for better or for worse. The other global force is the global force of decentralized networks of relationships. And it's all those people that you know that you're talking to on a regular basis, whether they're right here in Jackson, Teton County, Teton County, Idaho, or somewhere across the country or somewhere across the world. Those networks of relationships matter. And we do things, we actually in many cases, do business together, and those those actions, those of of our relationships, often have nothing to do with these large institutions that cover the planet. I mean, I'm 
You know, I'm talking to people in Africa every week. You know, we're not asking anyone's permission for us to talk and, and to do things. I'm coaching a guy in Nairobi, and I'm coaching a woman in, in London right now. No one has granted me permission to do that. We're just doing it because we have a relationship, and we agree that we have something to exchange with one another. And so we're doing we're doing business together and because we have a network of relationship. Is that decentralized network of relationship, would some people call that grassroots? Yes. Okay. And the cool thing in writing a book, you write a book and then you begin to sell it. And people come up to you and say, oh, did you write this book? I said, yeah. I said, That's really great. What's it about? And I, I typically say it's, it's for people who are in transition. But one of the things that's emerged in those conversations is talking to them about their their businesses and their organizations and their communities. And one of the things that emerged from that was this idea that I've now phrased as a persistent residual culture of relationships. And it exists in every place you have some kind of organized structure. And I'm going to give you an example of one. So we all know that the Boeing Corporation has been having real trouble over the last couple of years. And I did some webinar work with some engineers there. And I went, I went up to Everett to, to see them. And I like to, I like to meet people face to face and have actual relationships with them. And so I spent a day up there with them. And then one of, one of the guys that I've known for about 10 years, he took me around and showed me the offices. And he took me into the executive suite. And we were, he introduced me to a woman who was a, an executive assistant to one of the vice presidents. And you could tell that conflict that's going on in Boeing had really been laboring on her. It was really painful. And I said to her, you know, a company's not defined by its executives or its tragedies. It's defined by its people. And and those people form what I call a persistent residual culture. It persists because they're values which reside in their relationships with one another. And that's what makes Boeing a great company, regardless of what's going on, it's still a great company because of people like you and my friend. And so don't lose that sense that this is a place to invest yourself and make a difference. And and her demeanor just changed. Like I had given her this this greatest gift and, and this tension that was in, you could see ten, the tension in her body just went away and she melted. And she was so grateful for someone just to recognize that the work that she does really does matter. And it has nothing to do with whether the executive team is making good decisions or bad decisions. I like that. Yeah. That's when you break it down to me, when you say persistent residual relationships of cultures, it's like, whoa, that's deep. But breaking it down makes it far more understandable. No, no, just this is a way to remember. It persists meaning it lasts mm-hmm. through all kinds of transitions because it resides it finds a home in the relationships that people have at work. Mm-hmm. And and what I tell people who are CEOs of organizations, you know, when you if you come in as a new CEO, you think maybe I'm going to come in and I'm going to create a culture here. Well, if you want to create a culture here, the first thing you have to do is go join that other culture that is already there. And they need to accept you in. They need to know you by your first name. They need to trust you. And they can only trust you by you you coming to them and say, I want to be a part of your persistent residual culture of relationships. 
And I've seen that happen, and it's it's really remarkable when you see the grassroots people. That's, that's where this kind of discussion went. It starts with the grassroots people. When they start feeling the freedom to take personal initiative to ignite change or to create impact that makes a difference that matters, and the CEO or the boss or the owner is saying, thank you for that and, and affirming them for doing that, the company changes uh, because all of a sudden – the people who have given themselves over many years in particular are, rec- are being recognized. And it's not about compensation. It's about something deeper than that. It's, it's about being shown that you have real worth, that you're really valuable. And, and that's, I think, a very uh, important thing. And it's not just important for a business. It's also important for a community. That recognition that you speak of, to have people understand that they have a true value and impact in the organization. Do you feel that our society has lost some of that interaction with the way just inner, you know, communication has developed that we've lost that personalization to help lift somebody up and make them feel good? Well, we all have a lot of virtual relationships, but they're not real relationships. They're, they're connections. Mm -hmm. And for me, a real relationship is a direct relationship where you have a direct re- interaction with someone. Uh, like you and I have a direct relationship. There are a lot of people that I know that only are connecting with. I mean, they, they, they send us stuff on Facebook. We talk to them through Twitter and LinkedIn and that sort of thing. We, we do a lot of social media interaction with them, but we really don't know them. We don't really know who they are. We don't know anything about their families. We don't know anything about their background. We may, we may know a lot, a lot about their politics, <laughs> but that's about it. Or where they ate dinner. Or where they ate dinner. <laughs> or what or car they're or, or, uh, or something about their cat. Yeah. But, but we don't really have a direct relationship with them. And I think that's, that's where it's missing. And if you look at that, ha- how it happens in a business, uh, I think most people see business relationships as more of a, like a contractual relationship. So when someone's hired to work at a business – they're, they're signing a contract to work for the business, and there's a relationship there, but it's more like an economic exchange. So I'm going to work for you, and I'm going to give you my best work, and you're going to pay me for that best work. That's the contract. When if you look at other kinds of relationships, let's take a family. A family, the, uh, the relationship in a family is not contractual. No, it's, it's based on a promise, and the promise is that we're going to respect one another. We're going to trust one another. We're going to be mutually accountable to one another. We're going to love one another. We're going to care for one another. And that's that's the difference I see between where a lot of relationships have gone in the modern times that we're in and where they used to be, but they still can be because I think we all have some of those relationships. Uh, the, the question is how discerning we are about the difference in the, in the normal everyday experiences that we have in life. Well said, and, and I, I agree with agree with you on and all that and, and that statement that you just made about the difference between a relationship and a connection I feel that transitions us into a conversation about communities mm-hmm. as far as what is a local community what defines it and for people who live in really large cities how can they find and define what a local community can be for them so they don't feel as though they're lost. I think this is a big a big topic for us, and I think it's one that we should be talking about 
uh, everywhere we go. I think it needs to be talked about on social media. I think the um, political candidates need to be talking about this because if you pay attention, in many respects, people don't care about community. They care about the place they live because it's the place they live, but they're not really thinking in larger terms of what is a, a community. And so I would say it begins with the values of community. What are the values of meaning rather than the values of finance, you know, the financial value of community? Uh, what, what is it that defines the community from the standpoint of what are its values? I mean, I think we, we talk about that on a personal level, but how much do we talk about that on a community-wide level? Now, if you talk to people who have lived in Jackson for 80 years, I remember, this was two or three years ago, I was at an event, and I don't know who this guy was, but he grew up in Moran, and, and he was, I mean, he was in his 80s, and he grew up in Moran in the 20s and 30s, and he was talking about what life was like in Moran in the winter. You know, and it was bitter cold. And they didn't have electricity up there. And they didn't have, you know, paved roads up there. You know, they had dirt roads up there. And he was talking about how the families in in the Moran community would all come together on the really bad nights, come together in one house. And the farmers would bring their, their cattle or their, they bring it to the farm as well. And they put it in a barn. And the, the men would be out in the barn taking care of the livestock and the women would be with the children in the house. And they didn't have central heating. He was talking about this. It was really fascinating. He says, you'd have a blazing fire going in the, in the uh, fireplace. And if you stuck your coffee cup on the, on the mantle above the fireplace, within a few minutes, it would be frozen. Hmm. So he was, he said the, the values that existed then in Moran and the whole of Jackson Hole Valley are different than they are today, which is you know, totally, a total transformation of this place. There are a lot of people who still harken back to those days. A lot of us came here because of those values, because we really liked the, the West and we liked that kind of frontier mentality of adventure. And But a lot of people don't have that, the, that sense about it any longer. And so we have uh, differences of values that sometimes bang up against one another and create conflict. So values is one of them. The history is also something that's important. We have a, a really great historical museum here. I encourage people to go frequent it, go see it, participate in it, give your money to it because I think it's one of the, the real gems. And, and also there is also our, you know, the Wildlife Art Museum, which is another place which is capturing the history of the natural world in, in Wyoming and in Jackson Hole. I mean, these are places that d- help define who we are because of the history of our place. We have our relationships. I mean, you're here, you have family here, you have an extended family here, but not many people have that extended family here. They come from somewhere else and they come here to to do things that are fun for them, you know, like fishing or skiing or mountain biking or something like that. And you know, they come for a winter and they stay for a lifetime. And there are a lot of people like that. So they come for different reasons. And that's an opportunity for them to, to um, to build a business, to build a life that they would have never had if they had stayed in Cincinnati or in Memphis or wherever they may, may be from. So it's a place of opportunity, community. And, and ultimately, a community is the place I call home. And 
it has to you have to find a way for it to be home for you to be able to call it that. And I think it has something to do with all those other things, the values of history, of relationships, of the opportunity that you have to make a life here. I think those are all things that contribute to, to a place being a community. Yes, um, well said. And I've heard many stories like about why it was so important that in the, in the older days that people relied on each other because you could not survive out here alone. I'll be right back with Ed after this quick message from the show's sponsor. Jackson Hole Wine Club, the newest and most exciting club in Jackson Hole. We accept everyone as members who are of age and happy to pay. No application to qualify. Looking for something exciting in your inbox each week? Sign up for Jackson Hole Wine Club's Wine of the Week offer. That's right, new and exciting wines at awesome value, to enjoy each week with family and friends. Visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash TLS to learn more. I want to get back to something that you mentioned about finances and, and values. When people are living outside of Jackson Hole, for example, in San Francisco, Dallas, Texas, how can they find that connection or help create that connection of, of a community so they don't feel lost? And also, how can people separate out that finances, the money side of things, from what your real values are? I think it's a hard thing to address. I think it's a hard thing to deal with. I think if you're going to place your values, your meaning, the meaning of your life ahead of simply making money, then you're going to have to make some hard decisions about where you live and what you do. And I think that that's going to be even more so in the future because I think the world is changing fairly rapidly, and I think it's going to be harder to to make money. And so if you're willing to li- live with less but with a deeper sense of values, and there are a lot of people who have made this choice. You know, they have – I mean, I see YouTube videos of people who who have decided to live off the grid, and they're building their little cabin – and they've found they're going to find a way to live without having to to be in the rat race, to, as they, as we used to call it, to to pursue you know a lot of money, and they and they will do lots of different things, and they will they will barter work with other people in order to support their values. So I think when you're unclear about what you what you believe in, what's important to you, then you fall back on okay i'm going to make i'm going to try to make as much money as i can but when you find that there are certain values that are important then at some point you begin to think you know it's all right if i make a sacrifice here and i live with less in order to have a life that has more to it and is it okay to make money and do something with that money can could that align with community values you could i don't think it's necessarily a given mm-hmm. i think I think a lot of people choose places to live because it's a safe place for their money. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't begrudge them that at all. I think that's smart. But if it's going to be safe for their money, then it needs to be safe for them. And it needs to be a place that they want to invest in. And, and that really is my, if there's something, a theme that I've had for most of my adult life, it's, it's that thing of caring for your community. And, you know, we, we could talk about that, you know, in terms of how would you, Let's say you're new in, in the valley. Let's say you have picked up and you've purchased a house or you've purchased a ranch 
and you've moved to Jackson Hole for the very first time. I mean, you've been coming here to ride horses in the summer or ski in the winter, whatever you've been doing in the past. I mean, this is this is who, who I was, you know, five years ago. So what I'm saying is that if you're going to come to a place to live, then you really need to make a decision that there's some place in that, that community that you give yourself to, that you're investing yourself and you're contributing out of your the very best that you have to offer, which I think is more than where more than money. Money's important, but it's it's not the most important thing when it comes to a community. Our our businesses and our nonprofits and our cultural institutions all need people to be involved beyond simply participating. So I, I like to, to, to pair two, two different things when I talk about community. One is we need to participate, and the other is we need to contribute. And participation is you show up for a concert at the Art Center, or you go to a concert over at the, the ball field at Snow King. Well, what does it mean for you to contribute to those very same things? Well, you get involved. You become a volunteer. You join a board. You uh, help go raise money for that, for that nonprofit for that arts association, for that arts museum, for the historical museum, uh, for the hospital. All these institutions. I mean, Jackson is a unique place, Stefan. It is one of the most unique places I've ever seen for this reason. And I rarely hear people talk about this. But it's very difficult to go to any place in the United States that has as few national brand stores in it. Most of the most of the stores, most of the commercial businesses in Jackson are locally owned. And I think that's a very significant thing that people in our community need to recognize. Because if we don't care for them, and, and many of these businesses won't last without the tourists, but if we don't care for them, then they won't stay. They won't be able to last. And so I, I see that this whole thing about community is not just about what it does for me, it's also what I do for it and what I can do to contribute to that. And, uh, and you know, for the five years that I've been here, I've been a volunteer off and on out at the Arts Museum, at the Wildlife Art Museum. And that's been fun. I mean, there's nothing better than to be out there on a weekday morning and they bring a group of elementary school kids in there and you start talking to them about mm-hmm. the art that's on the wall there. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's one of my favorite things. Haven't been able to do enough of that. But that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Find a place to contribute and go give yourself and be committed to that. And have a real sense that what you're giving to is something that has meaning. And, and, And when you're able to say, this place, this thing that I'm giving to, hospital or music program or whatever, it has meaning because of this because it supports a value that I have for artistic expression or for children to grow or whatever it may be. But I think being able to ha- articulate why you want to do something and why you want to contribute, I think, is really important. Because when we tell that story to other people, we're telling it to ourselves as well, reminding ourselves that this is why I'm here and this is why my life matters to my community. I, I appreciate you defining the difference between participation and contribution. Because when you first say people need to participate in their community, you defining those two elements really expands and gives gives better clarity to what people's actions are and what their um, commitment is to things. Now, the community is people. It starts with people. Yeah. And you mentioned small businesses. Where does the local government come into play? Is it there to 
tell people what they shouldn't do, can't do, or is it more there to support everybody to grow and be healthy? It's a great question, and I think it's a question that should remain a question and not without strong answers at this point, because I think everybody needs to ask that question. What is, what is the role and purpose of local government in our community and in the communities around the country? Because I think that there is a lot of uh, stress, a lot of conflict in local communities around the country. You know, it's not just a coronavirus. It's also the Black Lives Matter Antifa um, protest. And it's how does the local government see its role in serving the people, protecting the people, protecting property? Last year when I was, uh, I did a 10 and a half month uh, book tour. I was in and out, but I was, I was gone a lot, and I talked to all kinds of people. And one of the things I did was to go talk to people about their communities. I met a woman on an airplane flying from St. Louis to Atlanta, and I said, you know, we, we just started talking. She turned out to be an, uh, an architect in Birmingham. I said, I'd like to come see you and talk more about what you're doing in your architectural firm to support communities. Because she said, you know, our whole focus is on building community architectural firm that is building community. And so she says, we will not take things, uh, we will not take projects on that won't serve the community, their community. I also had a conversation with a town manager, town about the same size as Jackson, far less affluent, far less in every, but also a a really wonderful place uh, where the values and the history of the place really, really matter. And and I asked him about what, what are the challenges that you face as the town manager? And he says, you know, we extended our infrastructure because we believe that if we built the infrastructure, we would get more people to move here and we could build, we get more business to come. And you know what? It didn't happen. So now we're really struggling to maintain the infrastructure of our town because the tax revenues that come from new businesses and new residents hasn't shown up yet. So I think that the town governments have a very difficult job of managing the expectations of their people and the relationships they have to state and federal agencies. And this is what I've seen for a long time. You know, I was when I was a consultant back in North Carolina, I did some local government consulting. And, and this is what I saw is that there is a, a competition between these different levels of government. And the local government is, is probably in the weakest position of all of those. And so it's, it's a very difficult thing. Therefore, I think it's really important that people be really, inform, really well informed about what's happening with their local government and that they need to know their representatives, the, the council persons and the commission persons. They need to actually go meet them and talk with them, uh, wear them out, you know, in that sense, because they're representing us as, as the citizens of this community. And uh, I don't have an answer for you in, in a simple answer because I don't think there's a simple answer. I know that there are places where uh, local governments are having a, have created a very adversarial relationship with, with their business community and with their citizens. That's not here. But I know that's happening in other places because I know people who are suffering from because of that. What I think this means is that we we are at a transition point in the history and uh, culture of our country where we are going to have to decide what kind of place do we want to live in? What kind of community do we want? What kind of government do we want? And, and that's not something that you or I can make a decision on by ourselves. It's something that we really need to be in conversation with other people, 
so that we're well informed and we're prepared to cast our votes, maybe even run for political office, serve our community, contribute to it while we're also participating. Well said. And I like how you mentioned the expectations of that community. Did they get too far ahead of themselves with the infrastructure that they put in? But did they have reasonable expectations for for what their growth, what they put into place? Yeah, I think they did have reasonable. It just didn't happen. And for whatever reason. And for whatever reason, but it didn't happen now, but in 20 years it could because not everything happens immediately. The, the, let's call it a success that they put in the infrastructure and everybody moved that and they generated the enough tax base to support their improvements in what mm-hmm. they made, the investment that they made. Well, some people feel as though that you build it, you're, it, you will come, they will come. But is it in five years? Is it 10 years? Or is it 20 to 30 years? Is it, is it that long range planning? And it goes back to even in, in business, the 20 year overnight success. Yes. And we see people's successes. We don't put enough focus in what it took to get to that level of success. Right. And, and maybe the, that town can be a little patient and they'll see it. But then again, they got to pay for the bill. Well, he was telling me how they actually are approaching what they're doing. And mm-hmm. so instead of saying, we'll build it and they will come, you know, it's the, the, uh, the baseball metaphor from yeah. um, Field of it? Dreams. Field of Dreams, one of my favorites. What he realized is that we can't just build it and they will come. We have to go find them and bring them here. Mm-hmm. We have to give them reason to come. And what I think, I think one of the things that I, I'm, I'm a, I'm an observer of what goes on. I see patterns of behavior. And one of the patterns of behavior I see is that people are leaving cities and going to smaller towns. If you know a real estate person in town, you'll, you'll know that they're, they're busier than they've ever been because the market is higher than it's ever been because people want to move here. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an incredible thing to watch, watch take place. And I think that's going to be true. So that's another aspect of this decentralization. If you spread people out further and further, fill in... The uh, blank areas on the map in in the country, you have people, ha- maybe people who would not have had the opportunity to contribute in a significant way, say in San Francisco or in Las Vegas or someplace that, like that, but they come to a place like Jackson or Alpine or, or Victor, and all of a sudden, you know, they say, you know, I've got an experience in this. I can go contribute. And so they go find the pathway to get into a place where they can contribute. Mm-hmm. And and if people look at Jackson, where we were 40 years ago, yeah, this community was not as healthy. It wasn't as sustainable. Come the off-season, certain times of year, it shut down to where now we have more long-term year-round sustainability. Yeah. Well, but that 40 years ago mm-hmm. was, was representative of the way it had always been here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you think about it, uh, in the five years I've been here, there was, I think there's been one day when all the roads leading in and out of Jackson Hole Valley were closed. And I remember that, that day, it was about three or four years ago when we had the big, that big winter with all mm-hmm. the snow. I think we had 650 inches up on the mountain. I remember that moment thinking, wow, we're trapped here. What are we going to do? I hope we have enough food. And, and I'm thinking, so this is what they lived with 50 years ago, 60 years ago. You know, where they didn't have the, the airplanes coming in and they didn't have the, the road system that we have today. No. 
It is kind of interesting. It, it is interesting. And I remember those days. And I remember living here at one point and the canyon slid, Snake River Canyon. And it was closed for weeks, if not like almost two months, because the ground was still moving. They yeah. could have, people were like, well, why don't they just clear it out of the way? Well, they can clear it out of the way. But if the earth is still moving, you're just going to have to clear it out of the way again. And a while ago, people were used to that. They were like, nope, look at that. We'll just go another way. And and that's what you do. We'll do the extra two hours drive. Around. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You do. I, I want to transition into about community and how people can make a difference in in their community. What are your thoughts on how people can take action and make a difference? And and what does a difference mean as well? Well, my my theories that I've written about centers in what I call impact. And impact's a popular word today, but rarely do I see people actually define what impact is. It's kind of like the word influence. You know, I don't know what influence means, but people throw it around as this important word. Impact to me is a change that makes a difference that matters. So if you're living your life in such a way that you can pinpoint a change that makes a difference that matters, then you're a person of impact. You're making a difference. And so how do you get to that point where you, you do that? Uh, th- and I'm, basically, I'm going to give you the, the outline of the circle of impact model of leadership, which are three dimensions of ideas, relationships, and structure. But we begin with ideas. What, is, what are the values that you have, and how do those values define what you want? When people ask me, well, what, is it, what do I do to, to, have, to make an impact? I says, and I ask them, so what's the one thing you want to change? And they say, well, I, I don't know. I said, no, you do, you do know something that you would like to change. Maybe it's a change in yourself. Maybe it's a change in the world. But it's, there's something that you would like to change because you're bothered, disturbed, concerned, or you see an opportunity for change that it seems like people have missed. So identify that thing which you want to change, and it has a lot to do with what you believe in, what their values are. Um, I'll give you my own personal you know, For me, um, one of my core values is honor. I want to treat people honorably. I don't want to, I don't sit in judgment of people. I accept people for who they are, even if I disagree with them, because I, I want to have a relationship with them where uh, maybe we can have a, an impact upon one another, because maybe they're, from their perspective, I'm missing something they need to help me to see. The relationships we have become a, a, a focal point for, for change. How do I go build relationships where together maybe we can do something to make a difference that matters? Um, maybe we can go help a family who is in need. You know, it's, it's really up to what you want to do. You know, when someone says, so how do I do it? So is there, a, is there an elderly woman that lives down the street from you right now? And they say, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I said, well, go find out. And if there is, go visit her. Go see her once a month. Go spend a half an hour with her and just let her talk about her family. Take her some food. Do something to care for her. That's, and build a relationship with her because you never know what you're, what's going to come from that. And then look at the structures, the organizational structures where you work and participate. Maybe sports teams could be a, um, a group like the Elks or some, some association that you're a part of 
and look and say, what is the change that needs to happen here? And what can I do to help make that change happen? I know that helping that change happen has to do with our being able to understand really clearly who we are and what we're bringing to the task of change. So if you want to change something, I'd say change yourself first. Become really self-aware. Not self-centered, but self-aware. Understand who you are, what you have to offer, what you're not good at doing so that you don't promise things that you can't fulfill, and then go find places to give yourself to. I think a lot of it has to do with being really on top of your life so that when the situation arises, arrives at your doorstep, you're ready to step into the... Can we talk about self-awareness? Yes. And and you just mentioned a topic that I feel is very profound and relevant, I think, to any time of life. And that is, first you have to change yourself. Yes. And understand what self-awareness is. How can someone obtain a better self-awareness? Is that through meditation? Is that through... Um, you know, conversations with people? Is it an action? Is it what they are thinking in their mind? How are they going to transition to this self-awareness phase? And how are they going to know that they've done it? I think this is uh, a critical issue that we all face. There's no one who doesn't face this. Uh, I won't go into the depths of it, but, but there's a historian named Rene Girard who develop this whole idea that human beings simply want to imitate other people. And so their whole sense of identity comes from imitation, not from being themselves, but trying to imitate someone else. And he he takes it further to say that all of our desire to imitate ends up bringing, creating conflict and violence in the world. Hmm. It's it's a very deep subject. Um, I have just been introduced to this idea this summer. I am going to write about this once I've, I've captured the essence of what Gerard is talking about. But let's let's take this to a very basic level. I think most of us are afraid that if we really knew who we were, uh, people wouldn't like us. And so we play games to hide our own insecurity, and we're afraid to be humiliated by saying something or doing something which seems foolish. I think self-awareness begins with admitting that we're, we're not whole people that we may desire to be whole, but we're not. And, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. I, was a, I did organizational consulting for 20 years, and I had, I had good projects. I enjoyed it, but there was always something missing in the projects, and I couldn't figure it out. And it was so deep a question that I, never, I didn't even have the, the words for the question. I didn't know why they, these projects never were as satisfying as they should be. I mean, when you do a, you know, a strategic planning process or you do a problem solving and you get to the end, you should be elated. You should be so excited. Oh, this was great. But it was never like that. Something was missing. And I would say, and this is what, I, and I've learned this since publishing the book two years ago. So this is, this is brand new. And we could spend another four hours talking about this. But what I would say is this, is that what I identified is that in all these projects, Whoever was the senior person in the project, CEO, executive director, 
owner, they always were looking for the success to be something which deflected attention from them because they didn't want to admit that they were contributors to the problem. They wanted to say, let's go fix that problem, but I'm not a part of the solution. I'm, my part of the solution is hiring you to come fix it, and I can't do that. I mean, that's, that's not possible for a consultant to fix your problem. You have to fix your own problem, and it really began with, I think, with the, the CEO or the executives or the owners, the executive directors' own self-perception of their contribution to the problems in the business, not simply what their goal was in the business. And if, if the wisest people I know are the people who understand why they can't do it all and that they really need to hire people for their own weaknesses. Hire to your own weaknesses because if, uh, if you do that, then you're never trying to be someone you're not. But that means you really need to come to grips with who, I, who am I and what I, what I learned. It's, it's like when we were doing uh, Lion's Pride stuff and we were reading um, Gay Hendrick's book, The Big Leap. You know, and he has the four zones that we live in, the zone of incompetence, the zone of competence, the zone of excellence, the zone of genius. And that most of us live in our zone of excellence because we're good at what we're doing, but it's not our genius level. And when we hire someone to do the, the, the stuff that we're really excellent at so that we can get on to being the genius people that, we, that is latent there waiting for it to come out, then that's when we really find a real sense of who we actually are and we can become satisfied with who we are and we don't have to play the game of being some that we're not. So I think that's really the core issue of self-awareness is figuring out who you are and who you're not and, and being satisfied with the person that you actually are. So true. I can tell you it, from where I am now at 45 and where I was when I was 21 and graduating college, I'm a much different person because I'm more aware of who, who I am and who I want to be. And my contribution to my businesses that I'm a member of, that I have, mm-hmm. the community I'm a member of, mm-hmm. whether it's the Jewish community or the community of Jackson Hole as a whole, but also to my family. And I accepting those weaknesses that I have and identifying those has helped me grow and, and be more of a grounded person. Accepting your weaknesses is liberation. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, in just saying those words just now, mm-hmm. I had a chill go up my spine. <laughs> because what it means is that we're free. We're free of this fear of being found out to be a fraud. Mm-hmm. I think we all live with that sense of, what if they found out that I'm not as adequate as I project myself being? And this is the other piece of this, Stefan. It says, here you are at 45 and you see how much you have changed. Well, it's not going to stop. In another 20 years, when you're 65 you're going to see a whole different thing. One of the reasons I moved here was so I could change my life. And I tell you, I am a totally different person than I was when I arrived here in 2015. And I'm really pleased with what I've become. And I couldn't have done that without this community of people, of, of uh, people like you and others who have um, given me the right image to, to seek to be like. Instead of being competition I'm not in competition. I just want to be like people who I appreciate and I and I value and I honor, and I and I've been able to do that here. And so the next stage is beginning to to happen, and I'm excited about that. And it couldn't have 
that next stage, which is uh, partly having to do with going to Africa to do training, uh, could not have happened if I had not come here. So in many respects, a lot of people come to Jackson and it becomes an incubator of their own genius. That's a way of talking about it. And it certainly has been for me, and I I'm, I'm, will be grateful forever for, for this place for that reason. And I'm grateful for you and grateful that we have been able to intersect paths and continue that going as well. Yes. For ending the conversation today, yes. for today, for wrapping things up, what would you like to leave everybody with a final thought? What's a final thought that you would like to leave, share with everybody that they can ponder it a little bit and then a way that they can connect with you after thinking about your final thought? I would say that what I want for people is for them to think for themselves, um, be skeptical of every perfect answer that they hear, be skeptical of, of the things that seem to be too easy and too true. I would say uh, desire to be a person whose life matters to other people more than it matters to yourself, and that at the end of your life, people are talking about you on the day that they're putting you in the ground, that your legacy is the difference you made in their lives in, through your relationships with them. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, businesses and institutions of all types will come and go. And communities, physical communities, will change. But what really matters and what lasts for a lifetime are the relationships we, we form with people. And if you can collect, shall we say, an ever-growing list of, of people to whom you feel grateful for the impact that they've had upon you, then maybe you will be able to figure out how to collect another list of those people who are grateful for the life that you've lived and the impact that you've had upon them. So how do they find me? I have a website. It's edbreniger, E-D-B-R-E-N-E-G-A-R.com. And I have a book that's out called The Circle of Impact. And I'm getting ready to begin a publishing venture called The Transition Chronicles where I will publish five short books every quarter for the next year, which means 20 books, which will be initially available on Kindle. And I hope to have those out sometime in the early August. And, um, and, and it's one of those things that I write about things that people talk to me about. And I'll give you one example, and then it can be done. I spent the month of February in Africa. And I spoke to a lot of business groups while I was there. And the number one thing that they asked me about is corruption in government and business. It's a heavy topic. And frankly, I had never thought anything about it. And so I came home and I've written a short book called Where Did Trust Go? And it's really about restoring authority and accountability in organizations because that's where the trust is. And where, and where you have trust, then you will have a, a way to address the issues of corruption that happen. So that's, how, that's who I am, what I'm doing, and I welcome people to, um, to reach out to me. And I look forward to seeing all those books published as well and reading them. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Ed, and look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, thank all you. Right. Yeah. To learn more about Ed and his work with communities, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 103, 103. I sure am looking for more ratings and reviews. If you haven't gotten out there and shared this podcast with anybody, do it right now. 
share this podcast episode with two or three of your favorite friends. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I sure hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you to Michael Morey for doing the editing and marketing of this podcast. My boys, William and Lewis, and my wife, Laura, for all of your constant support. Thank you. Appreciate it, everybody. Have a wonderful week. See you next week. Bye-bye.